0: I'm Paul Bishop, and welcome to this speedless installment of the Six-Gun Justice podcast. With the recent passing of author Charles Portis, I'd like to talk today about the masterpiece of his career, True Grit, and the iconic movies that are associated with it. Due to the popularity of the John Wayne film version of True Grit, the novel it is based on is often overlooked. Written by Charles Portis as a follow-up to his debut novel Norwood, True Grit was published in 1968. Prior to publication, however, the story appeared as an ongoing serial in the Saturday Evening Post. The response to his magazine appearance was overwhelming, so much so that Portis's agent immediately began sending pre-publication galleys of the book to the major studios. This started a bidding war, with John Wayne offering $300,000 for the rights for his Bat Jack productions. However, he was outbid by Hollywood mega-producer Hal Wallace, whose many credits included producing Casablanca. Naturally, Wayne was not happy to be outbid, but he swallowed his pride enough to approach Wallace, who immediately offered him a million dollars to star as Rooster Codburn. But more on that later. The novel is told in the first person through the character of Maddie Ross, a prim, shrewd, strong-willed, Bible-quoting 14-year-old girl. While on a horse-buying trip to Fort Smith, Arkansas, her father is murdered by his hired hand, Tom Chaney. The determined Maddie doesn't appreciate the lack of effort being made to catch the murderer, so she sets out to bring the killer to justice herself. Believing he has grit, Maddie hires irascible, alcoholic Deputy Marshal Rooster Cogburn to help her hunt down Chaney and, as she says, avenge her father's blood. There are, of course, complications, as Chaney is hooked up with a dangerous gang of outlaw train robbers, one of whom, Lucky Ned Pepper, is Cogburn's deadly nemesis. There's also the irritating presence of Labouf, a Texas ranger who insists his name is pronounced LaBeouf, and to honor the character, will pronounce his name LaBeouf. The Texas ranger is pursuing Cheney to claim a large reward pertaining to other crimes. Conflict, of course, ensues. The conceit of the novel is its autobiictionalography nature, life the way it should have been. Yes, it is told in the first person, but not by the 14-year-old Maddie. Instead, it's told by the now 64-year-old Maddie. As a result, the 14-year-old Maddie is imbued with a sharp, clear voice of confidence, wisdom, and determination from the older Maddie's experienced outlook, Maddie telling a story of her younger self as she wants to imagine she was. From this perspective, Maddie is a strict Calvinist from the Ozarks, recalling her youthful grand adventure in the Indian Territory with an alcoholic, one-eyed lawman to avenge the murder of her father. While the growing affection between the younger Matty and the Krusty Marshall is central to the story, the older Matty does not allow the narrative to be betrayed by even a single false note of sentiment. Renowned for his dryly amusing observations on life delivered through deadpan dialogue, Portis has been described as one of the most slyly inventive comic writers of Western fiction. This skill is one of the novel's biggest draws and also speaks to its longevity in the public consciousness. There's this deep richness to the language. It caresses our 21st century ears with surprising formality, with nary a cliched tarnation or a howdy partner to be found anywhere. A good example of Portis' stylistic dialogue comes when Maddie confronts the murderer Tom Chaney, or the scoundrel Tom Chaney, as she calls him. Maddie orders Chaney to surrender, claiming there is a posse of officers waiting. Chaney responds, I think I will oblige the officers to come after me its brilliantly rendered prose. But the novel's richness doesn't just come from the language. It also comes from the very humanness of the characters. Colonel Stonehill, Moon, the lawyer Daggett, they all play minor but memorable roles. And Portis uses them much as a chef uses a fine spice. Just enough, but not too much. Portis would only write three more novels, the last being published in 1991. He was notoriously reclusive, not on the scale of Salinger or Pinchon, perhaps, but he refused to use email, had none listed phone number, declined interview requests, and shunned photographs with the ardor of a fugitive in the witness protection program. As a novel, True Grit is both satirical of Westerns and realistic. It succeeds due to its taut storyline, Maddie's irresistible narrative voice, the smart dialogue, and sharply drawn characters. Without a doubt, the character of Maddie Ross is True Grit's driving force and main protagonist. For producer Hal Wallace trying to make a Hollywood blockbuster starring John Wayne from a novel where the undisputed star is a 14-year-old girl, this was a major obstacle. Wallace understood the novel and didn't want to lose what made it so special. But he also knew John Wayne wasn't going to play a supporting role, even if he got top billing in the credits. And Wallace was certainly not going to pay a million dollars for a co-star. He knew if the movie was to succeed, it needed to be a John Wayne movie and to fill those expectations. Therefore, the adaptation from book to script needed a writer who could capture Wallace's vision of the film with Rooster Cogburn at the center of the narrative while not losing Maddie's heart and voice so specific to the success of the source material. Screenwriter Marguerite Roberts had been a queen among the hidden co of female writers holding their own in a male-dominated profession. She was successful and in demand by the top studios until she and her husband, screenwriter John Stanford, were blacklisted for their early associations with the Communist Party. It would be a decade before Marguerite was brought back into the Hollywood fold by director Henry Hathaway when he hired her to write the script for Five Card Stud. Since producer Hal Wallace had tapped his friend Hathaway to direct True Grit, Hathaway reached out to Marguerite to write the script, knowing she had the necessary touch of brilliance needed to marry the heart of the book to the demands of the film. The expectation was she would find a way to beef up the role of Rooster Cogburn and bring Wayne to the forefront of the movie, but Hathaway also wanted her to remember Charles Portis was a great writer. When she began writing the screenplay, he told her to lift as much dialogue as she could directly from the book, as Portis's words were already perfect. The one anticipated stumbling block to asking Marguerite to write the script was a right-wing leaning Wayne. However, he made no objection, as despite his conservative nature, Wayne preferred to judge individuals by their work, not their politics. Wayne would eventually go so far as to claim Marguerite's script for True Grit was the best he'd ever read. While he wasn't the producer, Wayne did have a large say in many aspects of the production, including casting. Taking the initiative, Wayne originally promised the role of Maddie Ross to his daughter, Aisa Wayne, Hathaway was furious when he found out and immediately rejected the choice, telling Wayne, you're going to have to go break your daughter's heart and tell her she can't do it. Wayne then suggested singer Karen Carpenter, as he was enamored with her effervescent personality. However, this time it was producer Hal Wallace who rejected the suggestion, insisting on having a name actress for the role, not a singer who was virtually unknown at the time. John Wayne's co-star in El Dorado, Michelle Carey, was the next name floated to play Maddie. However, she was unable to get free from the conflicting schedule for a film for which she was already under contract. Mia Farrow, Tuesday Weld, and Sally Field were all considered. While both Weld and Field passed on the part, Farrow was intrigued by the role until Robert Mitchum warned her of director Hathaway's reputation for being cantankerous and difficult. Farrow still wanted the part and asked Wallace to replace Hathaway with Roman Polanski. Wallace refused, and Farrow walked away. She would later claim turning down the role was one of the biggest professional mistakes of her career. Kim Darby was eventually signed for the role of 14-year-old Maddie, despite being 21, having just given birth and needing to nurse her first child on the set. She was also in the middle of a nasty divorce from actor James Stacy, best known for his role as gunslinger Johnny Madrid on the TV series Lancer. Their union had lasted less than a year. Darby had appeared in several TV westerns, including Gunsmoke and Bonanza. But Wallace had seen her on an episode of the TV drama, Run for Your Life, in which she played an unwed mother. He had decided right then and there she had the pluck and vulnerability for the Maddie character. Neither Wayne nor Hathaway were happy. Wayne would later claim, hell, I got along better with Kirk Douglas. But she was Wallace's choice, and he forced them to accept the casting. For her part, Darby drove a hard bargain, turning down the role three times before finally signing on. Darby brought with her an additional challenge, however. She was petrified of horses and insisted on spending the barest minimum of time on horseback during filming. At 48 years old, Darby's female stunt double, Polly Burson, was more than twice Darby's age. To compensate, the art department created a clay mask of Darby's face for Burson to wear in order to match Darby's profile. Burson was part of an elite group of females who grew up on horseback, riding calves when they were five, becoming trick riders by ten, and rodeo queens in their teens. These in-demand skills led them to become stunt doubles for stars such as Betty Hutton in Pearls or Pauline, Barbara Stamwick in Maverick Queen, Doris Day in Calamity Jane, and Gail Davis in Annie Oakley. These stunt women thought nothing of jumping off horses onto moving trains and stagecoaches, shooting from galloping horses, or being dragged through sand and sagebrush. In an interview in 1995, Burson maintained After rodeoing, stunt work seemed like whipped cream. Stunt work also played a major part in John Wayne's biggest scene. Stunt double Jim Burke performed the entire sequence in which Rooster Cogburn charges Ned Pepper's gang on horseback. Wayne is only seen briefly in close-up, with the audience unaware he's riding on a trailer, not a horse. Elvis Presley was originally considered for the role of Labeef, the Texas Ranger. However, his pompous and arrogant manager, Colonel Tom Parker, blew the deal by insisting Presley receive top billing over Wayne. Eventually, the part went to Glenn Campbell, who was not an actor, but he was a mega-country western music star at the time, having recently been named Entertainer of the Year by the Country Music Association. Again, Hal Wallace forced the casting to be accepted because he planned to get Campbell to write and sing the movie theme. Wallace felt the role of LeBeef was relatively undemanding and Campbell's inexperience as an actor would be compensated for by Wayne's star presence. Director Hathaway hated Glenn Campbell's performance, which he described as wooden. He resented the role being used as a carrot as a quid pro quo for Campbell's talents as a singer-songwriter, even if having a hit with the theme song would be golden when it came time to promote the film. Believing the casting of Campbell weakened the film, and angry over what he perceived as an insult to his directorial reputation, Hathaway determined to let Campbell's inexperienced performance stand as proof of Wallace's bad decision. Hathaway was a yeller and a screamer, no one for abusing his actors. Because he disagreed with their casting, Darby and Campbell became his main targets. Separately, both eventually threatened to walk away from the filming if Hathaway wasn't restrained. While strong in many areas, the script does few favors for Campbell's role. The character of Labeef is nothing more than an adjunct to the story. He's been hunting Chaney longer than Rooster and Maddie, and he's got years of experience as a Texas Ranger. But once he joins them on their quest, he does little more than react to their shenanigans. Labeef is supposed to be the movie's heartthrob, but Campbell never seems comfortable with his co-stars or his Texas accent, and his last scene clearly proves that once the main characters are safe, the movie doesn't need Labeef anymore. However, despite the discord the questionable casting of Campbell caused, it turned out to be a smart move as the resulting theme song for the movie, which Campbell composed and performed, became a top 40 hit. Still, Campbell later said, I'd never acted in a movie before, and every time I see True Grit, I think my record's still clean. Other key roles were played by soon-to-be superstars. Robert Duvall, who played the gang leader Ned Pepper, would be cast in The Godfather three years later. And one month after True Grit, Dennis Hopper would direct and star in Easy Rider. By the time the casting was complete, there were a number of odd dichotomies. While the 61-year-old Wayne was portraying the 40-year-old Rooster Cogburn, the 21-year-old Kim Darby was playing 14-year-old Maddie. True Grit's villain, the scoundrel Tom Cheney, was 25 years old in the novel, but 55-year-old Jeff Corey was to play Chaney in the film. In actuality, Corey was far from miscast. He brought a level of unexpected gravitas and menace to the role, which not only distinguished the film's character from the novel's characterization, but also noticeably deepened the psychological aspects. Always more of an icon than an actor, Wayne used his drawl and his swagger to make Rooster a classic movie cowboy. When we meet him, he's hauling bad guys to jail, and in the last scene, he jumps his horse over a fence and rides into the sunset. He might be an honry old cuss, but in Wayne's hands, Rooster Cogburn is an American hero. Initially, Wayne refused to wear an eyepatch for the movie, but Hathaway convinced him to do so by telling him he might win the Oscar if he wore it, and Hathaway was right. True Grit, however, would be Wayne's last huge commercial success at the box office. It was also his only Best Actor Oscar. The choice is often been disparaged as a sentimental gesture in recognition of his 40-year career. His performance in the movie was dismissed by critics as over the top and melodramatic, but time has proven them wrong. When accepting his Academy Award, Wayne said, Wow, if I'd have known, I'd have put that patch on 35 years earlier. On another occasion, he called the Oscar beginner's luck. The movie True Grid is not only iconic, but it's also an important film historically. In 1969, the year of its release, three of the top ten movies and two of the biggest shows on TV were westerns. True Grit reflected the changing times of the 60s, both in American society and in westerns. It was a film signaling an end and a beginning. The next major western to hit the big screen was Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch. This made True Grit the demarcation between traditional westerns with their emphasis on moral character and the ultra-violent revisionist neo-westerns notorious for their blatant brutality and bloodshed. The 1975 sequel to True Grit, Rooster Cogburn, was produced from an original screenplay. John Wayne starred again as the title character, this time alongside Katherine Hepburn as the elderly Spencer Eula Goodnight. The sequel was more a reworking of the original plot, with recognizable chunks from African Queen tossed in. It was not received well by the critics or fans. A made-for-television sequel aired in 1978, entitled True Grit, A Further Adventure. It starred Warren Oates and Lisa Pelican, and it attempted to conceive additional exploits for Rooster Cogburn and Matty Ross, but it failed miserably. The less said about this disaster, the better. In 2010, True Grit returned with a vengeance. Directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, with their expected quirky verve, the film is not considered a remake, but rather an alternative adaptation. Ignoring the screenplay and approach of the original True Grit, The Coen's hewed far closer to the source material to produce a film that can really be considered a truer grit. As in the novel, Maddie stands alone at the center of the Coen's film. Anchored by an amazing performance from the then 13-year-old actress Haley Steinfeld as Maddie, the film also featured a typically crusty performance by Jeff Bridges as Rooster Cogburn, along with Matt Damon as Labeef and Josh Brolin as Tom Cheney. The movie received critical acclaim and 10 Oscar nominations, but failed to take home a single golden statue. The two film versions of True Grit are virtual opposites. They've got the same name, but they're in totally different worlds. Both have strong writing and characterization, but in the Coen's version, Ridge's gruffly sweet performance turns Rooster into an irascible drunk, verging on being seen as a joke. In Rooster's opening scene, he's locked in an outhouse, shouting that he wants to be left alone. For the rest of the movie, he's always caught with his pants down, stumbling into dangerous situations and somehow shooting himself out of them. He's part of an outlaw world that's disappearing. Sometimes it makes him a fool, and sometimes it makes him a lost soul with a bruised heart. The difference is, in the original, we laugh with Rooster. In the Cohen’s version, we laugh at Rooster. However, compared to Campbell, Matt Damon's skills as an actor take the character of Labeef to a whole other level. Damon makes Labeef seem witty and vain and more than a little dangerous. When he meets Maddie, he's sitting in a room, watching her sleep. It's hard to know if she should trust him. By the end of the film, the Coen's make him even more complex. He's a hero in two fight scenes, and when it counts, he's a loyal friend to the girl he's scared awake. The Coen's make Labeef a character worth loving, not just a ride-along Cassidy. True Grit is a great novel because it balances death and revenge with charming characters and lighthearted comedy. Both movies understand that. In the original, the jokes are pure comic relief. When Rooster recalls borrowing money from a bank in New Mexico, Maddie says, that sounds like stealing. That's the position them New Mexicans took, he brays. I had to flee for my life. We're supposed to laugh along with Wayne, slapping our knees and saying, oh, that old so-and-so. Every laugh in the newer film, however, has a dark side. There's a funny bit where Rooster and LeBeef throw corn cakes in the air and try to shoot them. Rooster gets frustrated because he keeps missing, and he's hilarious as he sputters and hollers, but he's also drunk, or laughing at his expense, which never happens with Wayne. The original film of True Grit captures John Wayne's appeal, and despite its deviation from the novel, it tells a ripping good story. Its finale is upbeat and filled with hope. There's a future with promise for both Maddie and Rooster. By contrast, the Coen's version is downbeat, cold, and unsentimental. Maddie Ross never sees Rooster again after their adventure, and years later, when she returns to visit him at a Wild West show, she finds he has died. We also learn Maddie is a frigid old maid who seems to look down on everyone, effectively ruining the admiration built up for the character by Halle Steinfeld's shining performance. Overall, the first film is a coming-of-age adventure. Bonding and happiness abound. The Cohen's version is purposely unemotional and negative. The Coens may hew closer to the heart of the original novel, but there's no doubt in my heart that John Wayne original is the more enjoyable film. Thanks for listening to this exclusive speed-listen installment of the Six-Gun Justice podcast. Remember to check out the Six-Gun Justice website at www.sixgunjustice.com. Till next time, be safe and keep your holsters full, your saddle ready, and your wagons rolling. Adios! <music>